everybody, welcome to the Voxology Podcast. We are delighted. Delighted. Would, we're delighted that you would tune in and uh, and say hello. We are living in the aftermath of Loki episode six <laughs> and the realization that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has changed for good, but we're not going to spoil it. It's going to be glorious. I have, like last episode, a small friend next to me who is very eager to contribute to the introduction Seth. of the show. So, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Seth Thomas Charles Erie. Woo! Woo! Hey, buddy, welcome. Hey, everybody, welcome. We, Seth. We are congratulations. We, congratulations. Yes. Seth, do you want, what's one thing that you like about your dad? Uh, congratulations about Daddy Mike. Congratulations about Daddy Mike. Perfect. Listen, we, we always want to party. Yeah. Right? Right? Like a birthday party. Like a birthday party. That's right. Birthday cake. Yeah, with cake. Dude, Ooh. totally. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, I do all right. cake. Seth Erie, yeah. thank you. Well done. Yeah. I sit He's going to sit on the floor right behind me. So yeah. what could possibly go wrong? Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, uh, today, well, just hello and thank you all. Um, thanks for tuning in. We are doing some Bible stuff. Tim, do you have anything that's troubling uh, to your soul or no. any M Mike miserable moments? Any Tim's troubled times? I'm sure there's something. If I pick at the scab long enough, I'm sure something will come out. Okay. All right. Perfect. Life is like a blackhead. Um, <laughs> That's Forrest Gump part two. So yes, you never know what you're going to get, which is <laughs> horrific. Um, I want to say thank you to Lita. Um, Lita. Lita for um, jumping in the, the Patreon support crew. How fun is that? And Tyler and Daniel uh, and Nathan, Renee. And um, let's see, Courtney, uh, Chad, Annie. I mean, man, so great. Anyway, thanks to all of you uh, for saying hi. Yes, and who else, Seth? Who am I forgetting? Um, uh, Seth Erie. And Seth Erie. We are, we've left Seth Erie off of our list, but no longer. <laughs> Seth Erie contributes invaluable, incalculable That's worth true. to the podcast. Absolutely. Uh, so Tim and I have long talked about um so we've had a conversation with dan kimball we um way back in the day we talked to tremper longman um you know we've had we've explored stuff with pete ends and walter brueggemann and and we're just we you know the topic of church obviously is the topic we keep coming back but, but the topic of how to understand the bible what is it how we should approach it what sort of influence should it sort of um, wield over our lives so we keep circling back to this topic. Last episode, we got a kind of a theologian's perspective, right? Sweet Gombus um, doing his mind-blowing thing. Today, um, we interviewed a guy named Joshua Ryan Butler, who wrote a book that I referenced several times when we were talking about new creation stuff. It's called The Skeletons in God's Closet. You'll hear more about it on the interview. But he's somebody that has spent a lot of time wrestling with some of the difficult parts of the scriptures. 
And so we wanted to have a conversation with him as well, um, asking very similar questions to the questions that we asked uh, Gombas. These are questions that were generated by you that I've kind of classified and Tim has classified into greater grouping. So even if your specific question isn't mentioned, we tried to hit, you know, the biggest stuff that we were that we were getting. And so uh, this is kind of a companion conversation to last episode. And, and it's more of a practitioner, pastoral um, uh, point of view, uh, which, which, of course, you know, is where I live. Um, and uh, man, what a, seems like such a good guy. And is, you know, he's, he's very much willing to sort of jump into the really tough stuff. So we're grateful for that. Tim, anything you want to add uh, about the convo? Yeah, just uh, between him and Gombus um, tackling, you know, many of the same questions, they both offered such wonderful yet different ways of, not that they're different theologically, um, different approaches, uh, different flavors, you know, a complimentary complete meal. So yeah, I just, um, I really appreciated them both. Yeah. I appreciated both what they had to say so much. Um is very helpful for me, and I think that, or I hope, would be very helpful for a lot of other folks with questions. Yeah, it's so, man, it's so fun to be able to explore some of this stuff. One last thing before we dive in. Uh, a couple of episodes ago, we interviewed a guy named Dan Koch on spiritual abuse. And, um, and Dan has put together a group of resources. It's called SoYourDeconstructing.com. And um, it's, it's super interesting, obviously, books, but mostly podcasts, talks, um, things that he's collected over the course of, I think, several years since he's been doing that. Uh, but he wanted us to mention that, and I'm glad that he reminded us because that's something I would want to mention, too. Um, so could, we could put that in the link. So your uh, Y-O-U-R-E deconstructing.com um, is a resource that Dan and um, I think a friend of his put together. Uh, if you want to check that out, it's kind of a follow-up to the interview we did with him. So having said that, ladies and gentlemen, buckle up. We're excited uh, to have you meet Joshua Ryan Butler. Buckle up, buttercup. Ladies and gentlemen, it's so fun today to be here with a new friend who feels like an old friend, Joshua Ryan Butler, or Josh, as I'm going to just shorten that, yes, is uh, we've had, he and I have had mutual friends for a long time. He was part of a church in Portland called Imago Day, and Rick McKinley was, is a friend that goes way, way, way back. And Josh wrote a book I referenced um, several, several times over the course of the last sort of chunk of series that we've done about, okay, is the, is the heaven hell story, the real story of the scriptures, or is it bigger than that? And, uh, Josh's book, the skeletons in God's closet was a, was, was a fantastic, um, eye-opening read. And, and that was just one section. It, it's that, it's hell, it's Old Testament violence. It's like, oh my goodness, there, there wasn't anything being shot away from there. So, um, and Josh now is a pastor in Arizona 
Um, and so, Josh, hello. Welcome. Hey. Thanks, Thanks for so being much. here. Mike and Jim. It's awesome being with you guys. Yeah, I was sharing with Mike a few weeks ago, a good buddy of mine, Brandon. Well, a few months ago now, a good buddy of mine, Brandon, was like, dude, you got to listen to Vox, Vox Podcast and Voxology. And he was oh, a I started listening. I'm like, oh, this is so good. I think right in the midst, you guys were in, in the new creation series and stuff going on there. I'm like, man, there was so much good stuff. And uh, I, you know, heard your name a lot as well over the years from friends and different things. And yeah, I was just really excited to get connected. Yeah, thank you, man. And and Josh has given us permission to um, ask our our big Bible questions. Um, there there's some of this that comes out in the skeletons. Um, there there's obviously you can't approach the difficult texts without teaching about how you approach the difficult texts, and so <laughs> feel like this is a worthy. Uh, voice to listen to. And we want to thank you again for all of the great questions. Some of these um, we've asked other guests and we're going to wrestle with ourselves, but I never get sick of exploring these sorts of topics. So Josh, Josh, first of all, if you were, if you were talking to somebody who had no understanding of the Bible, other than kind of the general cultural view that it is an ancient weird why are people paying attention to this sort of document kind of thing? How, how do you introduce people to the world of what the Bible is? Um, how do you talk about it from that sort of big perspective to somebody yeah. who's new? That is a great question. One of the first things I find really profound is just that the Bible is more of a library than just one book. It's not one person just sat down and wrote the whole Bible. That Really, you're talking about a library of books that span continents that span generations that span thousands of years that have given rise to the most diverse worldwide religion and expression of, of, of faith in the world and god so there's something going on there that you you know whether you know much about it or not whether you believe in it or not whether, you know like there's something powerful worth paying attention to i think even just the massive impact that it has had on shaping culture on shaping people's lives uh, not only devotionally on personal levels, but institutionally, historically, on kind of cultural levels and internationally for, uh, again, whether one is um, excited about that or not, it's something to be grappled with and engaged with. And I find it powerful, just the diversity of um, voices and history and genres and expression and literature. And it's really, I think, when you step into the pages of the Bible, uh, it feels like you're able to enter into a cross-cultural experience of sorts as well. Mm -hmm. And getting, being able to, in a sense, visit uh, these parts of what I believe to be God's story from different times and places throughout history uh, that ultimately uh, are centered around who Jesus is. That I believe the, the whole scriptures, I would say, are, you know, some friends of mine, you know, the Bible Project, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. a unified story that leads to Jesus. But I love that. Concise description. Yeah. The whole story points to Jesus. So you're talking about a worldwide, global, spanning, you know, so many centuries of history, uh, and yet that so many have found, man, this whole story is something that points to Jesus at the center of it all. Totally. And I can also imagine our imaginary friend, you know, hearing that and going, yeah, but hasn't it also caused so much harm and division? Um. And, and why is that? If it's, a, if it's a clear book that's supposedly from God, um, why has it been the source of just so much ugliness and harm? Mm. You know? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's, that's, that's a great question well, that I can imagine people asking. 
That's an excellent question. And I mean, my suggestion would be that, you know, I think sometimes the most powerful things for good can also be when twisted or corrupted or distorted or misused can cause the most harm, you know? So I think of mm. uh, how many friends I know who have wounds, maybe father wounds, you know, like from a father who was supposed to uh, really pour into you and be present with and care and yet their strength, their authority, their whatever was turned to actually abuse or misuse or oppress. Those could be some of the deepest wounds. Yeah. It doesn't mean fatherhood's bad, but it means that um, because it was designed for something so good, it can carry a particular weight when it gets distorted. Mm. Or think of sex, you know, and sex is something that we've got as designed for good and the good of the world and flourishing, but uh, so many where it's been misused in uh, assault or manipulation or exploitation or selfishness or whatever. Um, and I'd say similarly that the, the Bible, partly because it's something so powerful, it's designed to point to Jesus kind of got a special target on its back from the enemy. I'd say, you know, like, uh, kind of like I grew up in, you know, uh, Oregon, as you mentioned, I was never really too worried about a terrorist attack there because, you know, we were small, we didn't have much influence, we didn't have much population, and whatever, you know, you'd expect it more in Los Angeles or New York or yeah, DC yeah. Um, because valuable things are a target. And similarly, uh, I'd suggest like um, the Bible is something sacred. It's, it's a, it's a, revelation of who God is. And mm -hmm. that's really powerful, but that also makes it, um, when corrupted or mishandled or misused, it can become a source of, um, harm, not, not the Bible itself, but it's misuse. Yeah. Did you always see the Bible that way? Or was that, was that a journey, um, for you? Cause a lot of us kind of grew up with that sort of frozen image of the Bible. It's, you know, it's perfect. Um, it is untouchable um and and kind of far away and then as we've gotten mm -hmm. older you're, you're looking at it and it's like oh there's some things here that look a little messy and seem a little weird it doesn't mm -hmm. seem as airtight um mm -hmm. you know and rarefied as when i first started looking at it so has that has that sort of been true for you as you've in, encountered deeper and deeper levels of the text a great question you know my own personal history with the bible is kind of interesting because i i did not grow up in the church and yet when i was a kid my mom had a friend who was a pastor uh, and he gave her a children's bible he's like hey your son josh might be interested in this and mm. i was like five years old six years old just learning how to read and my mom came home so like hey here you go and uh i just kind of dove in head first not even knowing what it was and you know it, it was a eager myers children's bible that, that was the version i kind of dove in and and uh but i remember just getting immersed in the story and really captivated by it and i would read it every day uh and i read it not as like a legalistic thing like oh, i have to or god's gonna be angry or something like that yeah. it was more like i found life there and yeah. a lot of that had to do with um you know i was a very uh nerdy kid you know so at school i had kind of the big glasses and the wild hair and play with me yeah you know and no one wanted to play with me everyone's running away and just for the record for those who can't see this his hair is totally straight and flat and no big glasses so um, <laughs> none of that has changed <laughs> i'm just jealous yeah <laughs> and then at home you know there were just some difficulties at home and things that um mm. I felt, you know, rejected at school and scared at home. Mm. I opened to the Bible and I found this story of a God who was close to the rejected and the outcast. I remember being a kid and seeing just these, this God, who man, he chooses this nation of slaves out of all the mighty empires in the ancient world or whatever, you know, and he goes, these are my people. I'm with them. I'm for them. I mean, them. 
And I can remember the pictures of like Abraham where he's sad or depressed because he, you know, he's been promised you're going to be the father of this great nation, but decades that he still has no kids. And uh, Moses where it's like, man, he's supposed to deliver his people, but he's out herding sheep because he killed the Egyptian. And the uh, um, David where he's supposed to be king and he's on the run for his life and he's scared and he's running from Saul. And from a young age, I just had the sense of like, man, this is a God who can take the hard stuff of our world. And this mm-hmm. is a story that's very honest with the hard realities of our world. Um, and so from a young, it, it was later in college that I really had a encounter with Jesus that just turned my world upside down. But mm-hmm. I grew up with kind of a love of the Bible and immersion in the story. And for me, it, it communicated almost the opposite rather than being kind of a far off, pristine, mm-hmm. untouchable fairy tale God far away. It felt like a God in the trenches of life and with the muck mm. and fire of history. And almost for the same reason I loved the Lord of the Rings growing up as a kid, reading the Hobbit and all. It's like the Hobbits were like the rejects of Middle Earth, but they're drawn into this a man, a grand, amazing story of uh, yeah. you know something much bigger than themselves. And I found the same kind of story at work in the Bible, only this one seemed real. Yeah, and yet you, you're as you say this, I'm just thinking of some of your writing, you're not afraid of the really weird, hard, tension-filled parts. Mm. Um, and usually those things don't go together. Usually it's, hey, I, ha- I, have, I've, I just love the Bible and I'm blithely unaware mm. of all of the stuff that it's actually saying, or I'm really aware of what it's saying and I can't get over those hurdles yeah. to receive it. And so how, how do you personally um, receive the scripture telling that story while sitting in the middle of um, hell language, Old Testament violence, you know, a seeming disparate portrait of God between Yahweh and Jesus? Um, you know, how, do you, how have you begun to sort of approach those texts that offend us you know, to some degree, I mean, rightly that, you know, genocide isn't a thing we're, you know, huge fans of or whatever. Um, yeah. How do you, how do you begin? So you're, you have this view of, and this picture of Jesus drawing close in the muck and mire. And I love that. Um, but then there are these sections that were like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that's in there. And I can't believe that's what God would be like. Um, yeah. How do you begin to approach those? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, you mentioned personally, you know, one of the ways that really came out for me at first was, as I mentioned, I'm in college, have this encounter with Jesus, and it's just the grace of God, the goodness of God. Oh, my gosh, I'm all in. It was all about God's goodness and grace and bigness. And I go back to my um, dorm room, and I'm telling my roommate, like, oh, my gosh, I never believe this. Jesus got a hold of my life. He's so good. And, you know, and he lets me go on for like five, ten minutes, sharing everything. And as soon as I'm done, the first question out of his mouth was, so do you think I'm going to hell now? Oh, wow. <laughs> And I was just like, man, I wasn't even thinking about hell. I didn't have that on the radar. That wasn't even my question, but it was my friend's question. And over time, I found a lot of my friends had questions like these. And over time, as I listened and entered in, like they became my questions too. Like, God, what, what is going on with this? And, um, and I think one of the ways I've tried to approach the, these over the years has been, kind of said, on the one hand, has been I've got just a bedrock conviction um, partly through experience and then partly, you know, I believe experience of the spirit of God and partly through what I believe to be the capital C church, you know, global historic mm-hmm. church's conviction that God is life, light, and love. The, 
there is no darkness. God is good. Uh, he is good through and through all the way down. So I believe that to my bones. Um, and yet I also, as we'll probably talk about more, I believe the Bible is fully authoritative. And so um, my default assumption is when I run into some of the tough topics like hell, violence, and the yeah. old time, and things like that, my default assumption is um, if it makes God look bad, it's probably something that I'm not understanding or seeing clearly yet. There's Ooh. probably the problem's probably on, on my end, you know, because I think the two sides of the equation to fall off of one is to go, well, the Bible says it, so God must be a jerk, right? You know, kind of to yeah. abandon yeah. the uh, God who is life, light, and love, the God who is fully good, the right. God who looks like becomes incarnate and looks like Jesus, you know, yeah. um, or on the other side to kind of go, well, I'm going to pit my doctrinal understanding of who God is against what the Bible is saying and say, well, then the Bible's just wrong. This part must have just been they misunderstood or whatever. It just kind of snuck its way into the Bible or something. Like my default assumption has mm. been, well, I think there must be the problems probably on my end, you know, like, right. like, which would make sense if I'm approaching a cross-cultural encounter with a library of books that span all different spaces of history and time. And to give you know, the skeletons in God's closet as an example, uh, a lot of those, uh, the themes in that book, it wasn't like I sat down overnight and read one book or something, had an epiphany <laughs> and like, oh, hey, here it is. That's the answer. But, you know, a lot of those came out of over a decade of kind of wrestling through these questions um, mm. and uh, gradual epiphanies that would come. Mm. You know, a lot of the chapters in the book are kind of a paradigm shift. It sort of starts with thinking, hey, we tend to think it's this way, but biblically it's actually flipped. Yep. It's this yep. way. You know? yep. And a lot of those um, didn't come overnight. They took time. And I found that to actually be hmm. a source of intimacy with God. It's wrestling hmm. word. Wrestling with, I love the image of Israel. Like the very name Israel, meaning he wrestle, wrestles with God, you know, and, and that totally. when God names him Israel from Jacob, Israel, it's this process of wrestling. And I think there's something powerful that the Bible is meant to, not be doctrinal bullet points, which is kind of said to you, but a story that we enter into and we grapple with God in the midst of that story. And yeah. there's actually intimacy and a profundity that comes through that process of wrestling. And it leaves you walking with a limp. Leaves you walking Come with on. a limp. Come on. I have a question uh, since you brought it up. I'm curious um, because one of the things that does get thrown around quite a lot is the Bible is authoritative. The Bible is authoritative. And and it seems a lot of the time that, or I'll just say some of the time, that when that is said, that it's a very two-dimensional concept or maybe a one-dimensional concept. And so from there, you know, it's kind of a, this is what we believe, this is what we say, delineate that out. And that authority becomes mm -hmm. a really dangerous and interesting uh, concept. So... Is the Bible authoritative? And if so, what does that mean? And what does that entail? How mm. does that authority, like, how should it be explored? And yeah. how do we, like, uh, recognize that or come underneath it? Or I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Yes. Well, a starting point for me, one thing that has really struck me over the years is, you know, I want to start with Jesus and looking at how Jesus talks about. Uh, for him, the Hebrew Bible, kind of the Old Testament is referring back to the Hebrew Bible. And I've been really struck over the years of just how high and exalted a view of the Hebrew Bible Jesus has. So he's constantly saying things like, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? Or 
it is written, it is written, it is yeah. written. I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And not only Jotter Tittle passed away, you know, so, uh, so yeah. this has this uh, extremely high, I think a way higher view of the scriptures than even people today who would say I have a high view, you know, like, like yeah. Jesus yeah. have an even higher view. Uh, and so part of my wanting to hold to a high view of the scriptures is really, a, it's kind of wrapped up with wanting to follow Jesus and be a disciple of him and, and, and hold it as high as, as mm. he does. And I believe part of the reason that it has that authority is because it's come from him, you know, that he's the eternal word, I would say, through whom the written word has come to reveal himself. Mm. And yet, while I think it's helpful to kind of parse out what do we mean by authority, right? Because mm. as we mentioned, there are a lot of ways the Bible can be misused, can be misunderstood, totally. can be misinterpreted. And, um, and I've, I've seen that a lot. So, uh, a few, a few things that have been helpful for me have been to say, um, part of what I find has the authority is, um, is not necessarily somebody's interpretation of it, right? Like there are many of our interpretations mm -hmm. and sometimes when authority gets pulled out kind of as a clobber club, you know, like you mentioned, yeah. Hey, it's authoritative to just deal with it. You know, <laughs> like um, you're kind of shutting down the ability to wrestle with it at times and to yeah. go with like, well, even if it's authoritative, is that actually what the story is saying? You know, and yep. uh, and I think as well taking into consideration, like in in uh, in skeletons, for example, both when it comes to I think of hell and when it comes to violence, in the Old Testament. Well, man, as I've delved in over the years, there's a lot more going on in the story than some of the fundamentalists maybe like uh, uh, um, some of the popular where someone would just say, "Hey, a face value reading says this." Yeah. Again, there's often a lot more going on than that. And you've got to look at genre. You've got to look at authorial intent. What's the author's intention? Uh, you've got to, I like the way one person, uh, I've heard said over the years, you know, like uh, not so reading the Bible literally so much as literarily. Right. Meaning um, a literal interpretation, depending on what you mean by literal, but sometimes the way that gets used, you know, I'm thinking if you're reading Revelation and John's talking about, God's on a throne and Jesus is a lamb and there's a beast coming out of the sea. If you read that literally, and this is literalistically, uh, that doesn't, I don't think John's trying to say like God's on a lazy boy recliner in the sky, <laughs> is chewing the grass in heaven, you know, whatever. Godzilla's coming out of the ocean. Right? Right? Like uh, you've got to, you don't want to interpret it literalistically is maybe a better word. Right. Literally literally so much as literarily going okay well what's this genre it's apocalyptic literature what's john's intent and how do we place those symbols within the narrative of scripture as a whole and when you do i think you see god's throne in his image for god's sovereign reign over all of heaven and earth he's exalted as the rightful ruler and king of creation uh, we see the lamb as a image with sacrificial imagery from the old testament it has to do with jesus is the atoning sacrifice who's reconciled uh, humanity to God by dealing with sin and bringing us back to him. And we see beasts are an Old Testament image for uh, empire, apocalyptic symbol for the empires of the world that rage against God and dominate. And so uh, when we when we place those symbols within the story of scripture as a whole, I, I think they start to become really powerful yeah. um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and carry a, a weight of authority in revealing who God is. Tim, I think that is a great question, my friend. And, and I want to back up to something you said right before you said authority. You talked about if it, if it makes God look bad, it's probably me. 
Mm. And and I I can hear, <laughs> you know, like um, Tremper Longman uh, years ago wrote about God as a warrior, mm. and it's yeah. literally. Yes, he ordered Old Testament violence. Yes, he did. Deal with it. And it's as bad as you think. Now, he doesn't say it, but in essence, he's saying, well, it does make God look bad, but he's God and, you know, whatever. Yep. Um, so let's take Old Testament violence as an example, right? Because I'm looking at it, and it looks like God told Israel to go do this, um, and they did it imperfectly. But but that that idea of that hermeneutic principle of if it makes God look bad, there there are some things that it seems like God is saying directly that make Him look bad, mm-hmm. um, and and I can imagine you know people like uh, at least in this instance um, mm-hmm. would say well I mean he there's no way around that so mm-hmm. so how do you how do you kind of flesh that out around those texts that seem to say. Um, that God wanted this, uh, or commanded it at least. Maybe he didn't want it, but he commanded it. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, uh, three shifts that I found really helpful. Uh, the first for me has been recognizing that uh, when these commands are given, so we're talking about commands like utterly destroy them, show no mercy, mm-hmm. not leave alive anything that breathes, which at first glance really, I mean, it sounds like genocide, they squat and exterminate, totally. right? Uh, well, one, one first thing I found really helpful to recognize is that the context in which these commands are given and carried out is uh, our cities. And now when we hear the word city today, we tend to think of a civilian population center. Uh, but back in the ancient Near East, these were small fortified military outposts, like really military garrisons would probably be a better kind of mm. kind of uh, approach to understand today. And so this would be an example of, I think, kind of the cross-cultural nature, right? Like we hear the word city and we think, um, I walk outside of my front door and my neighbors have the white picket fence out front and there's a right. school the street with the kids playing outside and restaurants and hospital and businesses, you know, uh, I've got my conception of a city, but when we're traveling back in time, so to speak, into the ancient Near East in the Bible, there's, uh, the city was something different then. So Jericho, SMSR, maybe 50 to hundred soldiers were able to be there. Uh, it was, government outposts with probably soldiers maybe few, and uh, maybe a few government officials. So um, we're talking about um, the picture here is uh, Israel. Like one of is, you know, they're, they're tearing down the Great Wall of China, not demolishing Beijing, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. Or uh, they're attacking the Pentagon, not demolishing New York City. Got right? it. Yeah. Still violence. We're talking about a military encounter. Um, it's not saying there's no bloodshed or anything like that, um, but it's of a different nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, you know, uh, that's, that's the first one. And then the second shift of what has been uh, to say that Israel is using what I like to call ancient trash talk. Right? Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is uh, when you read comparative accounts in the ancient Near East of uh, war, war histories, uh, there's like a genre of war history literature that loves to use this hyperbolic language, kind of mm-hmm. extremely exaggerated rhetoric to talk about victory. So you can read literally dozens of accounts where they're saying things like, we annihilated them, we wiped them off the face of the planet, they'll never be seen from again, heard from again, whatever. And then the very next year in the records, they're back again, strong as ever, causing all this trouble. And uh, I believe, you know, this is something like, uh, if you were to go into a basketball 
locker room <laughs> after the Suns. Right? Suns, we're we're uh, we're we're no, in the no, 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 totally. <laughs> but you go into the locker room after the basketball game, and they're just like, man, we wiped the floor with them. They could not get a thing past us. We annihilated them. They they yeah. had nothing on us. They could not, you know, they, they they couldn't get past us at all. And if you took their language literalistically again, yeah. you'd think the score is like 120 to zero, when in reality it was 120 to 100, right? Like. It yeah. was still a dramatic victory, but not as extreme as the rhetoric alone would suggest. Yeah. And you walk out saying, oh, man, why, 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 why you guys got to be lying in the locker room? <laughs> you know, like, like why yeah. can't you? And it's like they're not lying. It's just they're using an understood uh, rhetoric, nature of speech, you know. And, and this gets us into the issue, I think, of genre, again, mm-hmm. right? Like, as we're reading these texts, sometimes we have to take into consideration the genre it is and i think it's helpful to see in joshua and some of these passages that they're yeah. uh war uh war rhetoric, right yeah and i'd also kind of nuance that by saying even if we didn't have comparative accounts from the ancient near east about this the bible itself demands to be read this way mm. uh, what i mean by that is uh, this uh uh these drastic marching orders uh, but really should destroy them, show no mercy and all. Uh, they really show up in four main places. There's God saying, do this, two battles where they said we did it, and one place where they look back and say, uh, it's been done, kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what you notice is those two battles where they, mm-hmm. they do it, uh, they don't actually do it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. what I mean by that is one of the big ones is in Joshua, uh, for like 10 to 12, if I remember right, it's been a bit, but... Um, in context, like all the forces of northern Canaan, all the forces of southern Canaan are rallying their forces to take out Israel. And the picture is this is a defensive battle. Like they're about to get demolished, right? Mm. Uh, and this is the famous story where the sun stands still and God rains down hailstones and the enemy armies and all. And um, at the end of the battle, when they won, they chase away the, you know, the, the folks remaining. And Joshua uses this extreme rhetoric and he says, we did it. We utterly destroyed them. We showed no mercy. We did not leave alive anything that breathes. And he keeps on going. He says, we took all the land of Canaan. We defeated all the kings of Canaan. We, And if you read him literalistically, he's saying the conquest is done. Promised land is ours. Game over. It's over. Yeah. It's finished. The only issue is we're in Joshua 10. <laughs> and all you have to do is Keep yeah. reading Joshua 11, Joshua 12, into Judges and 1 Samuel. It's not going to be till generations later in the days of David that mm. what they're actually seeing is actually accomplished. And so uh, Jewish readers, interpreters, everything, like, like they've understood, like this is, we can't read it literalistically or the rest of the story doesn't make sense. Mm. They're using this hyperbolic language. Uh, the other, it's in, there's another case in Samuel with Saul and the Amalekites and same thing. You go a little further, you see mm. they're still back again, strong mm. as ever. Um, but that's to say, okay, these are military cities. Um, they're using this ancient trash talk. It's just doesn't mean there's not violence, doesn't mean that, but it's not the genocidal bloodbath mm. of the creature. Mm. And the third and final thing I'd say is that, um, and this is maybe the biggest one, is that the dominant language used for Israel with Canaan uh, is not is the language not of killing them off, but of driving them out. Uh, the mm. driving out language shows up over 50 times for Israel with Canaan. And there's constantly uh, these themes of, how much bigger and badder the powers in Canaan are. Like, even though they're bigger than you, stronger than you, you think you're going to get crushed, whatever, like God will fight for you. It's not them fighting on behalf of God. It's God fighting on, be- on behalf of them to deal with these kind of imperial powerhouses that are um, ravaging God's good garden. 
week. Mm-hmm. So, and you think there's a difference between, you know, like the rowdy bouncer getting bounced out of the club for being a whatever, <laughs> you know, annoying at, at 2 a.m. It's it's like, yeah, hey, bad news is you got you got bounced, right? But the good news is you're still alive. So, um, so I think there's a more complex picture got when it. we grapple with the text that um, doesn't solve every yeah. issue. So there's no tension at places, but I do think it gives a more nuanced picture. Uh, yeah, that, that I've actually found, we can get into why if one, but why I've actually found hopeful. Um, yeah, in the midst of the injustice of our world. We live in a world today where so many have the boot of empire on their neck. So many are mm-hmm. under the powers that seem like, I, I think of working internationally around the world and with communities right here at home, where it just feels like the forces and powers of history and Things that um, yeah. there are so many crying out to God. It seems like the cry in the Bible and the cry of the global church that I met. You know, it's it's not God. If you're good, why would you ever intervene? It's God because you're good. Why do you wait so long? Come on, the patience of God. It was the real scandal of the gospel. Like how God is being so patient in the midst mm. of the radical injustice of the world, the blood crying up from the ground, mm. um, and the good news is that. God hears the cries. They're not forgotten. Babylon does not have the last word. Jesus is coming to establish his kingdom and to uh, deal with the principalities and powers and those that stand in rage opposed to the goodness of God's kingdom. Yeah, there is a reckoning coming in. It's a reckoning to establish the justice of God and the goodness of God in the earth. And I believe that is good news and hope for the oppressed who cry out around the world mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tim, how does that sit with? How does that sit with you, buddy? Uh, it 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 makes a lot. It's it, it sits well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tracking it. It's resonating. I so so much of this conversation is always about. So when I think about the authority of Scripture, I think about what does it mean for me to. When you think about or when you use a word like authority, mm. part of what authority implies is a submission to mm. something that's offering direction or leadership or whatever authority and if i think about the bible in an authoritative sense what is it asking of me right not just saying so i have to parse that out or we have to parse that out what does this authority ask of me so everything you just said that requires that wrestling that requires that um it also requires patience from us and a, but I love the complexity of all of it. Uh, my big thing has been if this was too easy to understand, I would have bounced a long time ago. If I could have cracked the code and figured all this out, figured out, figured God out completely, understood Jesus completely, understood the Bible completely, I would have been like, well, okay, mm. now what? Is there a more complex version of all of this? Because this, you know, this is not enough. But. Mm this onion that continues to unpeel and gets and stays ripe as you peel it or, or gets riper as you get deeper into it. I think that is compelling to me. So when I think of an authority that requires me to, I might really appreciate what you said. Uh, perhaps I'm the one that's reading it wrong. Perhaps the discrepancy is on my end. And I had to put in a little bit more work. Perhaps my brain is not as great as I think it is <laughs> <laughs> on, a, on a first read or, or a first or 10th or 100th read. That being my responsibility 
my response to authority to an authoritative text from authoritative voice that makes sense to me i can sit with that sit at peace with that idea this is the way that i come alongside of or this is the way that i submit to this kind of authority it's not just like uh, one verse out of context mm-hmm. or um a sign on the side of the road or a, a church's wonky mission <laughs> statement or whatever like i uh this sits well with me i, I feel peaceful <laughs> <laughs> What, you know, one, just to piggyback on that too, I think one other, you know, observation for me is that I, I think there is a way in which stories in some way are by their very nature authoritative in a sense, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. I'm thinking right now, we were talking before we launched in just some of the division and polarization in our society and some of the different camps and, you know, four different uh, quadrants, you might say. And, and one of these has uh, been interesting to me is like each uh, of some of the driving camps and ideologies and things of our moment, like have a story mm. that they share in common, but they're often conflicting stories with some of the other camps and, and things, you know, and, and that those stories really take on an authoritative nature for those who live into them. And so in some ways, I like think the biblical story, it's not just sort of a story in the abstract out there, but it's going, dude, it's a counter formation. Like it's a counter story. It actually, um, in many ways, implicitly critiques uh, yeah. many narratives that are driving our world right now and that story has a authority in the sense that uh, i think it's also intended to form a distinct type of people who are living in a different alternative way in the midst of some of the ideologies and trajectories of our age yeah totally when you when you get into some of the background the the question inevitably sort of arises how in the world am i without a seminary degree supposed to just open my English Bible and understand what the crap is going on when it, it says city and it says wipe them out um, or, you know, whatever, whether it's hell or, I mean, any number of things where people like us are going, hey, well, if you actually dig into it, it says something different. Uh, that leaves, I think, so many people bewildered with, okay, well, how in the world do I even approach this thing? Besides going to seminary, what what kind of advice... Uh, do you have for people who are wanting to kind of explore more of the nuances um, mm-hmm. and uh, in context, but mm-hmm. just don't have time to be a professional at it? Definitely, man. Well, I, uh, a few thoughts. One is, you know, I, I would suggest that I don't think the Bible was intended to be read alone. You know, like I, in some mm-hmm. ways, I think the evangelical movement or whatever, you know, like we, there's been this history where we've kind of set up the ideal of, you go into your closet alone with a flashlight and you read the Bible, just Jesus, and it's all just going to become immediately apparent. You know, and now I believe in Bible. I love reading the Bible, obviously. Like, I, yeah, we encourage our, our people to, you know, we do here at, at our church for sure. Um, but I also believe it's intended to be read together in community. Um, and I am, uh, you know, I'm preaching this Sunday on Nehemiah 8, and, uh, and it's interesting where. Uh, we're in a series on Nehemiah and all the people are gathered. Like once the city is kind of established, people gather together around the word of God being proclaimed. Um, but there's this huge emphasis throughout it on uh, not just that they read it, but that the priests, the Levites, they did all this work to make sure the people could understand it. Yeah. And so over again, it's uh, like four times in this yeah. couple of verses. So the people could understand and that the people could understand. And so the people can understand. And so I believe that there is a, teaching function to the church as a whole that sometimes we muck up and mess up, but it's, it's a part of the calling is not just to read the word, but to 
teach mm -hmm. the word and to help bring healthy, good instruction. And I got to say, I mean, I know, I know in our moment, like there's, I don't want to deny it, there's been bad teaching. There's, you know, bad, you know, the bad instruction. And yet some of the greatest resources for me have been reading the Bible alongside the global and historic church. You know, mm -hmm. and so I love reading, I, mean, I love reading the church fathers. I love reading people throughout church history, the ways that they've grappled with it. I love, uh, overseeing a lot of our international partnerships, um, uh, over the years, uh, in a, in a prior role and reading the scriptures with brothers and sisters from around the world. Uh, and then with others here in our own community. And so I, I think my, my biggest encouragement would be for starters, just to go, um, dude, it would be, it's good to read it within the communion of the global and historic body of Christ. And there's a lot of great resources out there. I love, yeah. I mean, Bible projects, do, they've got great accessible, free, high level resources for digging into what the Bible is and how it works. Um, and the other is, I'd say, to be comfortable and content, if you will. Maybe comfortable is not the right word, but to, to um, I've become very encouraged that I don't feel like I need to freak out anymore when I hit a rough, rough patch, a bump in the road on the Bible. Like mm -hmm. I hit some of the, there's some passages I said, what's going on there? And like, oh, I've yeah. become okay with going, I'm not sure. <laughs> like, yeah. like I, yeah. I, I don't know right now. And, and I'm okay with that. And part of what helps me though, is to rest into the bigger story. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to understand. Yeah. I don't want to dismiss that passage. I, I, and as a leader in the church, especially I feel like I've got to grapple with it maybe more than, uh, uh, with some of the passages, especially if they have implications for how we do life as a church, um, mm. I need to wrestle with that more than someone in the pew, uh, just to really figure out what God, what are you saying here? How does that shape our life? Um, but that there is a, um, it, it's okay to hit parts and go, I don't know. And yet I know that Jesus is good. I know he's given me a spirit. I know that he's with us and I know that the story's good, even when there's parts of it that yeah. when I'm in other cultures and I see stuff that traveling internationally a lot, you know, sometimes I see things that like, and that makes sense, you know, but totally. I just trust that it's right. making sense in their, you know, in, in their, in their totally. content. Totally. Well, I'll tell you what, my man, thank you for your time. This is so great. Um, so I totally recommend skeletons. You also have, is it pursuing God? Uh, the pursuing it? God. The pursuing. See, I knew, I knew, I knew. <laughs> it was a flip. It wasn't pursuing us, pursuing God. It's God's pursuit of us. So the pursuing God, and then shocking. My son Seth hears that there's a podcast and is waving into the camera. Yeah. Yes, he's the best. Um, where can people find you online, bro? If they'd like to see some of your sermons or wherever. Totally. Yeah. So I, I've got a website. I'm horrible at updating it, but joshuaryanbutler.com has got just uh, some, yeah, content um, there. And then I'm, uh, I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram a bit, but honestly, social media, I kind of suck at social media these days. Totally. Uh, <laughs> I don't you. think that's a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that needs to be elevated Ooh. to a spiritual gift. Yes. <laughs> um, bro. Thank you, man. This is, this is thank absolutely you. great to talk with you. Thanks for your time. Thank you guys. It's awesome getting to be with you guys. Thank you. Peace out. <laughs> Peace out, Seth Eerie. Yeah. Peace out. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported 
by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials. Facebook.com backslash voxology podcast and on Instagram at voxology. Thank you, thank you, thank you for walking the long road with us.